and welcome to this week's episode of Roadmap. I'm your host, Rach, and today I'm really excited to welcome another external guest onto the show. Um, Her name is Rose. She's a product lead at Bumble. And today we are going to be having a kind of side quest um, to some of the usual content that we talk about. And it's going to be an interesting one as we will be delving into the idea of product self-help books. Now, there's a lot of them out there. Um, What we're going to do is really dig into that and essentially come up with our own version of it. But before we... um, discuss why we have this idea why we're deciding to do this from scratch and pretty much on a live podcast um today a live recording kind of um rose could you just give us a bit of introduction to yourself um for the listeners at home so what you do what's your journey been like how did you get into product management sure yes so my name's rose and i'm a product lead at bumble so i manage a team of pms um i have been in tech since I graduated and for the first few years I kind of orbited around product management so I was a management consultant we were helping clients develop their products faster Um, and then I worked for a couple of companies where we did bespoke solutions for clients Um, and then I joined a company called Black Swan and what they were trying to do was move from bespoke solutions that they made for single clients to productizing what we did and have a a portfolio of products that we could license to people and so that was my segue into true product management Um, I spent some time in a startup incubator as well where I developed the product from idea to spin out so developing that MVP and then I became head of product at Moonpig where we met and I hired you into your first product management role very successfully Um, doing all right And, and, (laughs) and so that's how I that's how I then came into sort of managing product managers and leading a team. Brilliant. What a journey. And yeah, thank you for coming on to the show today. Um, So today's topic. So there's a lot of product management books out there, um, a lot which sell for a lot of money on Amazon um, and other websites. And many get talked about in everyday conversation as product managers and they get referenced quite a lot. And they have this buzzword of, this is going to help your career. This is, you know, if you use this, you're going to have a lot of success in what you do as a product manager. Um, However, how seriously should we be taking these line for line, strictly following them? How useful are they? And I guess the reason why this topic has come about is a few weeks ago, we did have um, a phone call and we were discussing topics for this episode. And this is where we had the slightly quirky idea of how about if we just take all these product self-help books um evaluate the message i guess and actually really ask ourselves do they help product managers what is the reality of using these in everyday um everyday roles that we have i think something that's really interesting is there's a lot of variety to what you do in product management and there's often that kind of notion of well I've read this book and I've tried to apply it to my everyday job but it's just not right is it me am I a failure as a product manager and yeah. I think today we're going to tear that apart <laughs> we're going to give you a realistic handbook of um how to pm how to product manage um which should hopefully help a lot of you at home and if it is and if it's really successful maybe we'll publish it uh, earn a <laughs> bit of extra dollar um yeah yeah. exactly so um i mean product management is still an emerging discipline right and so i'm very grateful that there are people out there writing down and codifying here's what this job is and how to do it i think there are a couple of problems with um the literature that's out there at the moment and the first is that um a lot of these books describe how you should do this job under ideal circumstances Um, so, I mean, a key example of this would be Marty Kagan's book, um, Inspired, which is a great book. He had to write a whole other book after that book called Empowered to persuade companies to let product people work like this, (laughs) which I think, um, points to the fact that there's a problem. I think that there's a problem when people read these books and they think, okay, this is how I should be doing the job. And then they find that they can't do it by the book in their environment and they start to feel like they're not doing it correctly or that something's wrong or this is project management, this isn't proper product management and they get very frustrated. Um, the second issue I have with them, and this is not to disparage these books, I think they can be very useful, but they do cover about 20% of yeah. the job, which is 
the thinking behind how you make decisions in product. Whereas the rest of the job, 80% of it is other stuff that I don't see talked about anywhere. And these are the things which PMs are having struggles with and there isn't really anywhere for them to go. Um, and, and a lot of that is just really the people side of the job and the soft skills rather than the hard technical skills of how should I think about product. So yes, that's why we decided what if we were to write a more realistic yeah. handbook to help product managers, what kind of thing would be in it? Yeah. I think it's really interesting as well that you've mentioned that, you know, it's about 20% of your job is that thinking, mm -hmm. that theory of product management. And actually Callum, who from the BBC, who's been a previous guest on this show, I remember the advice when I first started out in product was it's not, specifically a role product is not a role it is a lifestyle and at the time I was like State of really mind. is it is it really it's like you've just got to practice it you've just got to like live and breathe it in your role and adapt and at the time I just thought oh, that's a bit wishy-washy but actually I think the the more years I've had behind me as a product manager it is so true like no two companies are the same mm. in how they practice so neither should no two product managers yeah. And I think this is where this book is going to be very interesting that we come up with. Um, so where where should we start? I guess the obvious bit is the title. Yes. I don't know if you've had a chance to think about... I've had a little thing. Um, <laughs> some ideas or... yeah. I've got some great original titles, which definitely haven't been ripped off from other famous self-help <laughs> books. Um, so should we, should we take it in turns? Yeah. See what titles we got. Right, yeah. Okay. Well, my first one is I've got Eat, Pray, Launch because... Those nice. are the two things that I do before a big <laughs> go-to-market moment. Brilliant. Um, so I've done a spin on measure what matters mm -hmm. instead of measure practice, brackets to you and your role. So that's a bit of a long title. And if you can't tell already, it's I'm catchy. not that creative, but catchy. it'll catch on. It'll catch on. I've got Zen and the art of cross-functional stakeholder maintenance. Yeah. Yeah, I like Zen. Maybe you need to be to zen. zen. Just shorten just it to zen. zen. There we yeah. go. Nailed it. Um, the flexible product playbook. So instead mm. of the product playbook or the lean. I think lean gets thrown about a lot as a product term. And I think it's been used that much that maybe we need to reinvent that and turn it into flexibility. Because mm. that's what it's always mean meant to me. So maybe like the flexible product playbook where, you know, you take the bits that you need from that. Because that is a useful book, but I wouldn't say that I've taken everything out of that book and adapted it to what I do every day as a product manager. So flexibility. I like that one. Yeah. yeah. How many more have you got? Because I've been on the train doing this. I've got hundreds. <laughs> that was that was me. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm not that creative with puns. No, I, think, I think you've kind of won <laughs> with that last one. I've also got how to win engineers and influence people. Oh, nice. Who moved my metrics? The subtle art of not giving a delivery date. That's a joke. You should give <laughs> delivery dates. And the life-changing magic magic of managing up. Nice. I like that. Yeah. The old <laughs> buzzword, managing upwards. They decline in quality from then on. So that's where I'm going to stop. <laughs> Brilliant. So we've got the title. Um, and I guess like any book out there, let's start with the basics. So what is a PM? What is a PM? Yeah, Rachel? in our opinion. Yes. Okay. Are you ready for this highly technical and sophisticated <laughs> point of view on this? Yeah. Okay. So I've written down here in my notes, you are just a person trying to get things done, <laughs> which I think is true. Well, that's how I feel yeah. a lot of the time. So I, I think it's, it's worth zooming out and thinking, why does the product manager job exist? Like why do companies spend money having these people on the payroll? Okay. So I think that basically that your job exists because um, the team, the, the squad that you're working with is very expensive. They're yeah. expensive resources. And essentially the, cost, the company that you work for is investing a lot of money into these people to produce something. And so very really, like very roughly, you're trying to make sure that they're working on the right thing. And since there's a lot of uncertainty about what is going to work and what won't work, then you are attempting to guess correctly at yeah. least some of the time. And yeah. that's a lot of that's a lot of what the technical and thinking aspects of the PM books are talking about. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that it is that key there. It's about maximizing the value of the product that you work on. Um, I think sometimes as a, 
product manager or working in product, you do feel like you are at the core of everything. Mm. It feels like the book has to stop with you and you're in some ways the decision maker. And I think actually for me personally, how I operate as a product manager is I like to flip that on its head. I do not want to make the decisions all the time. I'm quite a collaborative person naturally. And I think this kind of leads on to the next bit where it's again being against that age old stereotype of um, being the CEO of your product. Mm. I hate that terminology. Why do you hate it? For me, I think a CEO is there to make the big decisions and direct the company and to say, this is what we're working on. This is what I want the priority area to be. I would like this doing. Whereas I think as a product manager, there's elements of that, but I don't think you need to make the decision for everything you work on. I think you've got to have a lot of trust in the team that you work with. Um, I think that's the only way that you you get things done. I think if not everyone is on the journey with you, how are they going to feel empowered to come up with mm. design solutions, technical requirements? Like I am not an expert in those areas. Like the only role that I should be taking in that is facilitating the journey and making sure that we don't go off on too many tangents yeah. so that we're not, going away with that value. I think CEO of the product implies an awful lot of control. Yeah. And that's how I read it. Yeah, it just feels (laughs) like very powerful. And it's like, I'm not a very, I mean, I'm powerful in some ways, but I don't see myself as above anyone else. Like everybody has a part to play in a squad. Yes, but it it sort of implies or gives people the impression that you can just make a decision and then everyone else has to comply with it, which is very rarely the case. Yeah in a, a product manager role that's exactly. not how that's not how only it when it escalates <laughs> and it gets really like really serious and yeah. a decision just needs to be made yeah sometimes but sometimes not every little thing no not, you know like what's the color of this button i want it to be green that should not be the role i don't no. think and i think it, i think what you just said makes a great point about you're not really there to make all of the right calls yourself you're there to make sure that the right decisions get made by a group of people um and that's, yeah, there's lots of people that you need to influence. And a lot of the job is about influencing beyond your your small area of authority. Yeah. Um, and you may, depending on the company you're working in, you may actually have um, more autonomy or less depending on the environment. So, you know, this is where a little bit of some of the books fall down is that a lot of PMs would, would love it if they could do go away into a cupboard and do all the thinking themselves and come out with the answer yeah. and then that's what gets done. But if you work in a large bank or a highly regulated industry or uh, all different kinds of product management yeah. jobs, that's, that's, that's not the way that your team works. And there's nothing wrong with yeah. with that. If you find yourself in an environment where actually you're, you, you have multiple constraints and you need to persuade a lot of people before you can get to a decision, yeah. that's very normal. And, yeah. and that's why it's important, I think, to think about those soft skills as well. Yeah. As a product manager that works on a regulated product, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's I would also, end up in prison. <laughs> so I think we're talking about the topic here, or this chapter will be yeah. about autonomy and control. Yeah. Because what you described at the beginning there, saying, I feel, you, you feel like the buck stops with you, yeah. is accountability. So PMs feel a lot of accountability for, for the results that they're trying to drive. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they're in a, a low control environment where they've, they don't have a lot of direct control over it. And that can feel quite stressful. Um, but I think another thing is that you can, you can earn yourself more autonomy through delivering results. So yeah. I think one expectation sometimes that the literature sets up is that you will drop into a new role and just be given complete carte blanche to yeah. do whatever. Um, that's not true. But yeah. what's equally not true is that if you find yourself in a in a low autonomy environment, it's not it's also that can change, right? You're not stuck there forever. Yeah. And so the key is to make sure that your team is shipping good stuff yeah. and you have some small wins and that through that process of delivering delivering good results and delivering good work, you can start to um, build up trust in your team, in your area, yeah. and you will find that over time you get more and more autonomy and more people are coming to, with, to you with questions yeah. rather than with instructions. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really key as well about getting the right people involved at the right time. Mm. And that often comes up in product management. And actually, um, I'm kind of learning this at the minute, like knowing when a big thing comes up, when to involve the rest of the team, 
when to make sure that they've got enough to go off that they can go away and make their own decisions mm. and then re collaborate on that. Um, and it is a learning process because, you know, do you overshare that or, you know, but I think, I think as a product manager, and that leads on to like another buzzword where it's mm. like often you have to be like a cheerleader. You yeah. have to be really passionate, even if there's maybe things where it's like we have to kind of get around this problem with this solution and it's not ideal it's like how do you adapt to that how do you learn from it and how do you see the optimism in it yeah um yeah so i think cheerleading i think that's a good point a lot of your role in leading a team is just maintaining the kind of energy and morale of that team and that doesn't mean that you should be like a parent to the team and you've got to look after everybody's feelings and do all of that emotional labor because that can be exhausting yeah but i do think that you you have to try and manage yourself as yeah. a PM and see the opportunity and maintain that that optimism as you mentioned yeah. um even if the circumstances can seem difficult right because the job is all about problem solving right so there's there's whatever problem comes up whatever obstacle comes in the way if you're the kind of PM who sees that as a an interesting challenge and thinks, okay, how can we get around this obstacle? How can I move this obstacle out of the way? Or, okay, there's a new constraint now. How can I, how can we find a clever way around that? That's the kind of energy you bring to the team. And then it's infectious, right? And then other people can feel, will feel that. And you can, you can get more out of other people and get the best out of your team. If you go in with a positive energetic attitude, not saying it's easy, that it's hard to maintain that every single day. Um, And you don't want to be the only person doing that. but I think just going into it with a positive mindset yeah. is very, very helpful. Definitely. Sure. I think another part is, and we did discuss this the other week, like delivery is not a dirty word. <laughs> it's yeah. not It's not taboo. It doesn't mean you're a failure as a PM if all you do is delivery-based things. Because um, it can mean a, diff- like a lot of different things. And I think a lot of PMs get it in their head that if they're just doing pure delivery and it's just very delivery-focused objectives, then maybe they feel like it's not their true role. And I don't agree with that. I think Mm. you're still getting value out of the product that you look after. Um, And I think actually a lot of, if you think about a lot of businesses out there, like product management is quite new to a lot of companies. Many aren't product led. Many are learning about this industry. And before product management, there was project management. Yeah. So actually, if you bring product into this, a lot of companies will still be in that mindset of being delivery focused and it works perfectly for them. Yes. I don't think you have to be taking things as, you know, as they are, where it's like, you know, you've got creative freedom, you can have outcomes, you've got all the time in the world to think about these outcomes. Sometimes you just have to kind of mm. get on with it. Um, yeah. And I really like, actually, we've got some new values at Autotrader and one of the things that they mentioned of the, week, the other week was like, just crack on. And I, I, like I love that. that because I think, yeah, just crack on with it. You don't have to lean into every single aspect of what an outcome means and strategy all the time sometimes you can just go into delivery mode and just make that call and roll with it yes i think this comes back to the debate about which is more important the idea or the execution and of course the answer is that you need both yeah and one without the other is is kind of useless um but yeah i think not to not to keep focusing on marty kagan again but i do remember him saying that he in maybe in a blog post that PM should be spending 60% of their time on discovery or something like that. And I thought, yeah, like, I, can see, I can see your facial expression. I wish I had 60% of time for discovery. Right. Yeah. Um, very, I've, never, yeah. I've never met a PM who is spending no. 60% of their time thinking about no. what to do next. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time is spent delivering things to people and yeah. that's a key part of the job. Um, and being good at, ex- being good at execution, being yeah. good at delivery is... A, a brilliant edge yeah. to have as a PM because these these things aren't going to build themselves, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's no use having a, a plan, a pretty a very good plan that's very well thought out on a slide or something, yeah, or a Gantt chart, and then not actually kind of getting into the weeds with your team and getting it done. I also find that part of the job quite fun. Yeah, um, when you're in in the trenches with your team trying to get something over yeah. the line and get things in front of customers, a million obstacles will come up. Yeah, and so. Yeah, of course you should that. care about. Yeah, and, and, like and if I'm sat in the office and someone's like, Rachel, I've got a question. I'm like, yes, yes, tell me, which is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think you have to do both. It's very normal to be spending the majority of your time on delivery. Yeah, it's, I'm not saying that it's um, it's always going to be that way, but you shouldn't feel like something's wrong if yeah. that's how you're spending your time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
I think that it's just summarized by the chapter title like delivery is yeah. not a not a dirty word yeah yeah that should be the title <laughs> yeah okay chapter two um so we just have this down at the minute as technical skills yeah okay hard skills yes. so the crux of it the frameworks how you prioritize the different techniques yeah so we've covered the yeah. intro which is what is the product manager yeah. job <laughs> and now we're on to i suppose yeah. actually the part which a lot of the pm literature does cover which is as you say hard skills technical yeah. skills um, the thought work which is specific to product yeah where should we start i think a good place is when i think of hard skills you often hear the word frameworks um, particularly yeah. how do you use a framework to prioritize the work um, do they drive success? Do, do they actually do what they say on the tin when you read all these articles and all these mm. different books? I often find myself in a situation where I will find a framework and I think this looks great. I love the layout of it. Like I'm, I love something that's really visual and creative and I will often take it. I'm like, right, I'm gonna apply it to my job and something that I'm working on at the minute. And often I'll, I'll never see it through. And it's just, I've got about half a dozen mirror boards where I've started on a framework and it's just not quite worked. And I wonder if the idea in this is keep practicing it. Like we practice with iterations and features. Maybe like for me, it's um, find a framework that works. Do Either you, that or I'm not using them properly. Do you have any, any favorite frameworks? It's not particularly a framework. However, it is a way of thinking about things. And I'm very fortunate at the minute that I do work on a product that's beta um, and we're taking it to market. And I've always loved, in escaping the build trap, mm -hmm. the product cutter framework. I think it's so simple. And it's just that idea of, okay, what's the first thing that you need to start with? What's that first step? Without thinking of the vision or the future. And often you have to think about it on a beta product is like what's what's the next little bit that you can chip away at what are you going to learn from it um i am a big advocate for if we're launching something and we might think it's a bit risky because we just don't know the advantages of it or the success what metrics do we put in place how do we learn collectively as a squad as a team and i think that's really that's helped me have conversations then with other people in the team when we're thinking about what the design's going to look like so yeah that's something that actually it does work and yeah. I have put it in practice. Yeah, I think you've just said something yeah. there which to me summarizes the answer to this question of what a framework's good for, which is you said, it helped me have a conversation with the team. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, frameworks are ways of classifying different ideas or initiatives or prioritizing them, right? So you can you use a framework and you can come out with a ranking of yeah. here's, the, here's the priority order in which we should do these things, or you can classify things in a kind of two by two grid yeah. and decide which things you should do now versus yeah. later or never do, and according to the investment and the, and the output. So they're good for organizing your thoughts. They're good for sense checking your own thinking and trying to be a little bit more objective about what is the, what are the right way to, what's the right way to use this team's time and effort. Yeah. Having said that, um, I think in practice, what they can be, that, that none of them are perfect, right? Because you're still having to make subjective judgments when you're classifying or scoring yeah. the different ideas that you've got. So really they are useful for having a conversation with your stakeholders and with the team about why we should do this things in this order yeah. or why it makes sense to work on this idea and not this idea at the yeah. moment. Um, and that's, what, that's, the, that's the main thing I think they're useful for other than sense checking your own thinking. Yeah. Um, but for sure, I think if what one, I mean, point against frameworks is that if you, if a product, if you strictly go by a framework, I think they can lead you in the end to produce quite a bad product because there are, for example, like we've all seen products as, as product people now where there's something really annoying about it or yeah. there's some little flaw and you just know that that will never Fixing that will never come to the top of the list if you're using yeah. a prioritization framework because in terms of the impact on yeah. business metrics or even customer metrics, that, that thing is probably quite small. So if you're really, really rigid about using frameworks to prioritize absolutely everything, yeah. there is a load of stuff that you will never get done and, yeah. over, and, and you won't end up with a, with a product that you're proud of. So you should also feel 
free to break the logic of a framework sometimes yeah. and just fix something if you think it needs to be fixed. Yeah. Some things, some things are little bugs, which would that, honestly that it would take less time to fix it than it would to debate yeah. about where they sit in the framework prioritization matrix. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think they're a tool for you to use. They're a tool to facilitate conversations between you and your team. Yeah. They're a tool to sense check your own thinking and make sure you're not just going after the ideas that you like the most, but they're certainly not prescriptive because yeah. they are subjective. And also if you follow them rigidly, you won't end up with a great product. Yeah. Kind of like Agile, because mm. you know, like Agile doesn't have doesn't have a personality, it doesn't have feelings. It's like, do you know like, a suit is a suit mm -hmm. or an outfit is an outfit. And it depends on the person wearing it to really show that off. Yeah. Yeah. If that I makes think sense? It it's makes sense. Analogy, I think <laughs> some structure is better than none. Yeah. I think is the point we're making yeah. here. But if yeah. you try to rigidly adhere to a structure, yeah. you might find, as you said at the beginning of, of this section, yeah. it breaks down when it meets the messy reality of yeah. your product <laughs> and you can't quite make yeah. things fit into the framework, right? For sure. Definitely. Um, I guess the next point as well, and this kind of leads onto that because I think a big part of prioritization and what you want to get out of products is that data side. And mm. for me as a product manager, data is so important. Um, I come from an analytics background, so I've, I'm always going to have that mentality in my head of, okay, what data would we look at for this? And I think it's so important. I think this is where the CEO of product doesn't work again, mm. because I've found that when it comes to data and being data driven, I don't just want to be directing the team in that. I want to involve the team from the get go when we have a new feature, when we have a new idea, bringing them into that and making them feel empowered to know what we're looking for in terms of success. So yeah. whether you work in tech, design, delivery, like how do we get together and we say, right, well, this is the North Star metric, like there's always an objective, but yeah. within that, if we're about to launch this feature from everybody's different angles, what, what is it, what we're hoping to see? What do you wanna see out of that? And then working with analytics and having an analyst to support you in that. Yeah, I think, again, community-minded kind of spirit, rather than me just saying, right, I wanna get 30 bips and I'm gonna make a lot of money and the consumer's gonna be really happy about it. Actually, within the depth of it, for yeah. me, I think this again is where the CEO product thing doesn't particularly work. I don't know about you, but. Yeah, I think um, yeah. the theme of using data and being data-driven is, is well-intentioned. Yeah. So the idea of being data-driven is to be more objective rather than subjectively going on your gut feel. Yeah. Um, I think the problem is that when the data that we're talking about is usually the transactional data from within your organization. So it will tell you what's happening right now and it will tell you what your, what your users are doing now and how they're using the product, but it won't tell you what you should do about it. <laughs> um, and also it doesn't show you, I, I think, it, it sometimes when we're talking about numerical data, you can it, it excludes from the definition data from outside your organization, which can be anecdotal yeah. data or um, where the zeitgeist is moving or what your competitors are doing yeah. or general trends in the market um, or a story that a particular user told you or things yeah. that things that people who are not your users are doing, like people who aren't your customers yet because they're not already using your yeah. product. So there's re there's a real limit to how much insight you can get just from staring at yeah patterns in the transactional data within your company. It's certainly better than having nothing to go on whatsoever, yeah. but um, it's still open to interpretation. And so I still think, I, I still think you've, you've, there's always going to be an amount of subjectivity involved. Yeah. Um, and that speaks to what you just said about the collaborative piece is yeah. that it's important to bring different perspectives on, um, on where we should go next into the conversation. Yeah. And often it's, often the data isn't going to be a great a great ar um, arbiter of which of those paths you should take. Uh, so what are we saying here? We're saying don't not use data, <laughs> but it's not gonna tell you what, yeah. it's, not gonna, it's not gonna be the answer hidden in the data no. somewhere. It's just gonna tell you, here's how your users yeah. are using your product right now. Um, and it's not necessarily yeah. gonna tell you what you should do. And you can see that in the way that people can have wildly different interpretations yeah. of, of the data. So, um, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of an example, but sometimes, uh, for example, like if people are, are 
um, spending, I, I remember somebody, somebody told me this anecdote about, they found in some data that people were spending a lot of time on a particular page yeah. on their site. And there were two different perspectives on that. Either, either it showed, oh, we should, um, we should definitely like put more stuff on that page because people are spending a lot of time there. It must be good. And then yeah. the opposite perspective was, and which, which turned out to be correct in the end when they, when they looked at, um, some of the recordings of how people were using the site is that people were getting stuck on that page because they couldn't work out what to do. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, or equally, it's like, so let's say, let's say that example, like people are dwelling a lot on a particular area yeah. of your website. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that's good or bad. It depends yeah. on what you're trying to achieve. So people might be spending a lot of time there and that's quite normal yeah. because they want to check everything over and make, make sure everything's right before, yeah. they're, or they're reading something. Like that can be absolutely fine. Or it might be because they are getting stuck. Yeah. <laughs> it depends it depends on on your interpretation of what's actually happening so that's a very very banal example of how the data yeah. alone can't really give you the answer about what you should do um but yeah also we shouldn't be blinded by just raw numbers and data from inside yeah. the organization you have to look outside as well so yes i think um there's a kind of there's a kind of this may not be right, Dunning-Kruger curve. I think there's a maturity curve that you go through as a PM when you're using data. So yeah. when you very start at the very beginning, you might be making decisions and calls based on assumptions and opinions. Yeah. And then you go through this phase of um, developing your skills and using data and figuring out that you can run all kinds of interesting queries and get all this information yeah. back. And every time you get the information back, you just have another question and you, you know, you're trying to gather as much knowledge as yeah. possible before making a decision. Um, and that can that can often be because you love having the information because information is power, but it's it's actually quite scary to still make a decision off the back of it. So you're yeah. trying to use it to figure out what is the objectively right thing to do. And then I think eventually you you meet you reach a level of maturity where you use data to find the biggest opportunities or to figure out what's going on. But actually, you're making a lot of decisions because of pattern recognition. Like you've seen the same kind of pattern before or you've yeah. got a mental model about how to solve this kind of problem or you have absorbed over the years so many principles around yeah. um how users behave and behavioral design and good ux that you don't really need to dive down into the details yeah. of all of the clickstream data anymore in order to know yeah what the approach the approach would be from first principles but even in that situation like your, the rest of your team might not be there yet. So you might have to use the data to tell a story yes. about why we should go in this direction or why we think we should do this. I think that's why storytelling is so important, how you bring that to life, how you, in a way, like if you're putting together a strategy, yeah. you can't just be like, well, yeah, I've got this feeling that, you know, we should optimize this part of the journey um, because I know consumers might have said in research that they feel that. I think that the data there, you can't argue with it. It's there. Yeah. And I think that's where it's really important. So if I've set an OKR, yeah. and I've been like, oh, I'm going to get this revenue, 30 bips for this objective, these are the results, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and then all of my tests have been flat or they might have failed, it's really hard to get out of that trap. Yeah. And then sometimes you feel really accountable when you have to take them to meetings or you have to share them with stakeholders. And it feels like sometimes you get a bit of like, I, I used to feel it, like I've done something wrong as a product manager because my OKR's not working and it's been really hard to flex it. Yeah, um, I yeah so the, I book, the like main books that are relevant here are. is like Measure What Matters. Yeah. Um, and I think to an extent, the, the book called The Four Disciplines of Execution, which I yeah. do actually really like. Um, and OKRs are just a format of goals, Yeah. right? But they're some specifics in measure what matters about how you should exactly ha what you should make the goal and what you should make the key result which yeah. is the, the kr in okrs so i think all companies do use the, these in some format because all companies have goals and try to measure their progress towards yeah you're them, not just right? working on a product and you're like <laughs> oh yeah it's doing all right at yeah the, exactly <laughs> at the company level and i think setting them for your own team is a great exercise yeah. whether or not you're able to ladder them up to company goals formally or or not um, and it's a great exercise for you to do because it uh, going back to the point about autonomy and accountability and control if you have well-defined goals and you're able to measure your progress in yeah. near real time towards those goals 
then it does allow you to, it allows you as a PM to let go a little bit of some of the control in terms of exactly how you're going to reach those goals, right? So it allows you to be flexible on how you reach those goals because you can measure, are we yeah. on the right track or not? And that's the strength of having key results that you can measure in near real time or yeah. in the four disciplines of execution world, uh, a scorecard where you're able to say, okay, what are the input metrics yeah. that are going to drive this out outcome that we want? So that's a really good thing to do because it yeah. allows you to lead your own team um, via results rather than micromanaging every single initiative and every, everything that they do. So I think they can yeah. be really empowering for that reason. The downside is that you can, every time you mention the word OKRs, it can spark off a long debate about exactly the correct way yeah. to do OKRs. <laughs> and you can spend yeah. a lot of time debating what is a good KR, what's a bad KR, and yeah. how closely this conforms to the book or not. And so yeah. again, it's like, they're good, they're, they're good to have, but yeah. You also don't need to get caught too caught up in the terminology. I've spent so much time looking yeah. at an OKR and I'm like, I've not worded it right. Yes. <laughs> and some people are very, very against. And sometimes you're working yeah. on things where, where it's actually quite hard to measure yeah. um, the metric you want to measure or it's a lagging metric or something like yeah. that. And so the best thing you can do is measure your delivery progress. Yeah. And I actually think that's legitimate. I think that's fine. Yeah. If you're working on a long project that is a dependency for multiple other things, yeah. actually what's really important is that you deliver that project on time. Yeah. Um, and so it's fine to define your goals in that way. Yeah. Um, so they should work for you rather than you spending a lot of time working to fit working the strict definition of, yeah. of the OKRs for sure. Um, but, but overall, I think, uh, but so going back to the point that you made is that um, you feel like you failed as a PM if you don't meet your <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't like, I mean, we've had experience in the past where it's like you, you go to a check-in with, uh, you know the, the, lead, the leadership yeah. team and you're dreading it and you're like i've got to communicate that this month this a b test did not and this kind of leads on to the next bit yes i think i put too much trust in the a b test that i was doing every time i launched a test and maybe this was me being very new to product management and maybe how i've adapted and picked it up and learned and i definitely don't feel like that now but i used to launch a b tests I'd be like, oh, cool, I'm safe for, for the month. Like, I'm going to deliver, like, a percentage improvement on conversion. And actually, it doesn't mean that at all. You're just testing whether there will be an uplift, if there is statistical significance. And I think sometimes I used to get very caught up in it. And I'd yeah. treat it as a really negative thing sometimes if I went to check-ins and I'd be like, yeah, so we struggled with this this month. It's not what we expected. Um, and actually what I should have done is just flipped it on its head and just said, look, we've learned from this test. It's a learning and this is how we're going to adapt to it. Um, so yeah, I do, th I do think we put our like, pressure on ourselves. Oh, for sure. OKRs. And that's because I think... But I shouldn't have really treated it like that, but I think I got it in my head and how I interpreted it. I was like, oh God, I have failed. Well, the job <laughs> tends to attract like, very driven people who yeah. are happy with a high level of accountability yeah. and want to drive results. So that's yeah. quite natural. Um, I think setting yourselves goals and setting the team goals and OKRs is yeah. supposed to be motivating but a lot of people are scared of it because then yep. what if you don't reach the goal what if you don't is it is is that yeah. defined as failure some companies and I believe that the measure what matters book says this talk about stretch goals and they yeah. treat every KR as a, an ambitious target yeah um that can backfire on you because if a target isn't achievable yeah it's not motivating if there's no way that you can get anywhere near yeah. it then it can that can backfire I think because then yeah. it's, what's the point in trying so that's the feeling that that's the feeling it that should a lot be of within get. reach where it's like <laughs> if I can increase this by 10% that feels like it's reachable and yes yeah but the purpose of them is really to give you an idea of whether you're on track or not um and if you're not then you have to have a think about yeah. whether we should keep keep uh going down this route or keep uh can stay with this hypothesis that we've been testing or do we pivot but I think that you've touched on there one of the hot like the hardest part of product management, which I would not want to try and answer in a book, which <laughs> is when you have done some A-B tests and they've all been flat yeah. or negative, when do you pivot and yeah. when do you try something else? When do you declare something not working? And when yes. do you think, actually, we need to keep on, we need to keep on this track. And until... how do you not get tied to the feature? Because I've definitely had yeah. features in the past where I'm like, well, I love this. I can't believe consumers aren't taking this. And you do actually, it's quite an emotive experience you go through with A-B tests where you expect it to be this big success because you really believe in it. Yes. And I think it's learning to kind of like separate yourself from the fact, look, it's, it's an inanimate object and you're just testing it out. Doing things that you really yeah. believe in is yeah. important, 
I think it, yeah. it's very, very normal. If, if you imagine if you were doing a bunch of tests where you yeah. thought there was a 50 50 chance it would work or yeah. not, and you didn't actually in your heart believe yeah. that this was going to work, that would be quite bizarre if you were building something that you personally were not backing. Yeah. So, it, <laughs> so it's, yeah. I think that's absolutely fine to yeah. be invested in every single test emotionally. Yeah. Um, but then try and have a learning a, to let it go try and have a growth not, mindset about it yeah. and, and and if it doesn't work you have to then dig in that's when you really dig into yeah. the data with the help it's hope, not a waste to test there's a reason why those metrics are that way and it's like what is that secondary analysis what is yeah. that within that? i think the only failed a b test is one where you learned nothing yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why it's important yeah. beforehand when you design it to think okay what would we Sometimes you can do a bit of a pre-mortem and decide, yeah. okay, if it's this result or above, if it reaches this threshold, we'd roll it out. If it's below the threshold, we consider it a failure. Yeah. Like tr try and figure out what you would do in each scenario so that you can work out, make sure there aren't scenarios yeah. which fall through the cracks where, oh, well, it was flat and we're not really sure why. So you have to go into it thinking, if it's flat, we'll consider it yeah. a failure. A lot of tests should be flat, right? If you're doing a do no harm test, yeah. and this this simplifies the ui but it doesn't we're just going to check it doesn't make anything worse yeah then that's a successful test <laughs> like you yeah. don't that's that, yeah not sometimes metrics not moving at all is is, yeah. is a good thing um but yeah i think that's totally normal to feel like to be feel invested in every test and then to be disappointed when yeah. it's not it doesn't fail fast yeah it doesn't result <laughs> in a huge in the huge uplift it was that yeah. you thought it was going to but then you have to have that growth mindset and think okay what yeah. can we learn from this um but the part about making that judgment call about whether we should carry on down this track yeah or we should whether we should pivot is a judgment call for which there is absolutely no framework or answer no. and, that, and that's really that's really the point where it's down to you as a PM. Yeah. because there are i can think of tons of examples where people fell into the sunk cost fallacy and just kept because they yeah. they spent they put a lot of effort into something they kept going and going and trying to yeah. make it work and they and in retrospect they shouldn't have done i could also think of a ton of examples where if people hadn't persisted through yeah. three four five failed iterations they wouldn't have got to the sixth iteration of the feature yeah. which was successful and i think this is something that confronts pms all the time especially when they're trying to be lean as you say so they're trying to build an mvp of a feature to test a hypothesis and yeah user or customer response is kind of meh, like meh, not much of yeah. a reaction because what you built was really minimal okay yeah what does that mean does that mean we should keep going and make the and improve the feature and iterate on it or should yeah. we take that as a signal that this is not worth investing in and, yeah. and that's that's just a judgment call that you've got to make and that's what the point where i think obviously other data and evidence really helps you there if you've got a high conviction from other evidence yeah that the problem you're solving is important yeah then you should keep trying to solve it but and maybe not just just not get wedded to a particular solution yeah. um but yeah uh, as you said a fail test is a learning opportunity the only yeah. the only time when you should really feel sad is if you didn't Got learn anything out of it yeah <laughs> you learned absolutely nothing but that also yeah. does happen so you have to you have to forgive yourself and all of the examples that you'll read in business books and kind of anecdotes about certain companies they're all told in hindsight so they're all told in, with the benefit of hindsight, knowing the outcome, and you're able yeah. to say, yeah, if we hadn't, we needed to persist through all of those failed tests until we got it right, or hey, we shouldn't. Ha I wish we hadn't spent all that time um, working on this feature that yeah. was going nowhere, and then after a year, we sunsetted it. Both of those stories are told with hindsight. And at the beginning, you can't tell, so yeah. you should have, have to forgive yourself, and you have to make a judgment call, um, as long as it's a sensible one and you've got your reasons. Then yeah. I think you should feel okay about it. I think this kind of leads on to the next chapter about how you handle these things. Yeah. So I think oh, it's great having all these technical skills, picking that up, that kind of thing. But I think that a huge thing, and it, it is a kind of case of like, you can't teach behavior, you can't t teach how people act or react to things. And I think a huge part of product management is that softer side of things. Mm. So if you need to pivot or sunset something, yeah. It's being bold enough to communicate why that is. And actually, I guess in terms of soft skills, and maybe this is a leading point, but like managing upwards and having that conversation. Yeah. Um, I think I've learned so much resilience from working in product that when I started my job when I was 21, when I started working, I'm a completely different person to how I am now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's like having tough skin and, you yeah. know, like it is It is kind of, you've just got to build yourself up. I think it's a job that feels very hard at times. Yeah. Um, and that's why 
I think it's important we have more of these conversations about the reality yeah. of the job and how, how tough it can feel. But for that reason, it's also one of the best jobs to be in for your own personal development. It sounds really strange, Definitely. but but developing- Your own personal life as well. Like if someone's yes. been a bit mean to me in real life or someone's said something in quite an odd way, or I don't know, like there's, there's often or if you drama tried that you're having your real Or if you tried life, something and it didn't like, work. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we're on part three now, which is like the soft skills. And I do yeah. think it's, um, product management is a people job. Yeah. It's, you, you can produce almost nothing by yourself in product. You're no. always working through other people. And most of the time you're working through other people who don't manage you. But don't, sorry, <laughs> who aren't managed don't by work. you. Yeah. <laughs> you don't manage them. So you don't really have any authority over, no. <laughs> over them. Or you're working through people that work in a different department or are more senior to you. So yeah. it's, it's definitely a people job. And 80% of the job is working with people, yeah. influencing people, collaborating with people yeah. and taking people on a journey with you. So it's a real... It's a real gap in the market, I think, for yeah. for um, a how-to book on all of those skills. Yeah. Um, I can't think of I can't. I mean, there are there are good communication books out there and books about conflict management and yeah. assertiveness and all of that kind of stuff. But those are all, yeah, those are all the soft skills. I think management books aren't necessarily that useful. There's a lot of books about like leadership and management, which yeah. are written from the perspective of somebody who's in a very senior position and ultimately the team that they're working with kind of have to do what they say. You're not in that yeah. position, Sophia. Yeah, I'm like, if I was a director, you're like, of course, people oh, yeah, this would, would probably be take my lead, an example, because <laughs> um, I'm in that role. But yeah, it is hard as a product manager, actually. Yeah. Like, if you've got if you've got an opinion on something, and I'm not saying I'm right all the time, but it's kind of like, if you've got, if you know that you have to guide that team and you have to communicate, mm. maybe sometimes the reasons why you have to do certain things or why you're on that journey... I think it's, yeah, it is all in that communication and softer skills. I think whenever whenever I start on a new product or a new job, the best thing you can, I think anybody, it's not just product management, I think it's just if you work in a role where you have to work with a lot of people and achieve success through others and collaborate and bring a community together, I think the best thing you can do is actually just get to know people yeah. around you, learn what they do. So I've just started on kind of a new aspect to the product that I'm working on and it's unlocked more opportunities to collaborate with other teams and I'm not even thinking about the potential features we can do in that area at the moment I've got I've got feelers out there and we are starting to think about it but the the priority thing that I'm doing right now is I'm just speaking to the tech leads in that area I'm speaking to the designers to the people that work in that every day and I'm like right tell me about the journey tell me about the architecture um, what what is your opinion of it at the minute? Um, so where you're do you investing see in building the relationships before yeah. you need them. I think it's so important. Yeah. I think if you just come into any sort of new product and you've not taken that time to learn architecture, to learn the journey, really learn that entire experience, it's so much harder for you to coordinate and work with people yeah. in the team. I what think about, interpersonal um, skills are so important. What about managing up then? This is one of our chapter titles within soft skills. Yeah, I think this is really interesting because like, if you're a senior person in a company, you're not seeing the detail that happens day to day. Mm. You've got so the 10,000 foot view. Yeah, all you've got is, look, are you driving success? Like there'll be somebody in leadership who has to communicate that to someone even more senior to them. And yes. all they need to know is the, the key performance that's happening right now. Yeah. Perhaps they're there. I think sometimes, like I never... I would never go to like leadership with problems. I'd always kind of come with a problem and a like, look, this this mm. is where we're at right now and this is what we're thinking. This is the risk of this. This option has less risk. And I, I like to open up discussions and that is how I kind of manage upwards in my job where yeah. it's like, I am kind of coming for advice sometimes or I'm telling a story or a narrative. Um, but I'll, I'll never just kind of go with the negative of, of things like yes. I always have something where it should be a discussion point. Yeah. I think they talk about elevator pitches pitch, pictures quite a lot. Yes. Where it's like, because if you're a director, you probably only have like a few minutes amongst yeah, and you everything. Don't, and you don't necessarily And they don't need to know all your drama yeah. between like underneath that and all the things that you do. And they also don't need so to know to communicate to where, where yeah. something scored in your framework or where how- Where can we help you? How you, yeah. <laughs> how you can, like the-, the the all of the ins and outs of how you came to this decision that is too much detail but at the same time when you're coming to a senior person 
even with your roadmap or a plan or something that necessarily yeah. a problem you're kind of asking them to give you cover and sign off yeah. and uh, approval for what you're doing so yeah they need to feel good about that they need to feel comfortable that yeah. that they have just enough information to make sure that that decision or yeah. that choice is good so yes just giving them the right information and object uh, as objectively as possible but also yeah. you have to make your recommendation i think the worst one of mm. a, a, a failure mode is to go to a, a senior person with asking them to make a dis yeah. make a choice between two options and not yeah, but asking them to make the hard choice instead of you. Yeah. <laughs> so ideally, you would go with yeah. a recommendation of what to do, explain why, and I think that's how that's how yeah you would deal with those situations. And quite often as well, if you're not saying, "Look, this is what I believe in. This is what I think we should be prioritizing next," because of these reasons, if you don't do that, if you're not very proactive more often than not in a lot of companies leadership will just make that decision for you yeah they will just come in and they'll be like right well i think let, let's just do this and that is then how you become i mean some some product managers might be happy with that but it, i guess it depends on the type of pm that you are but i think you are there to be trusted to be proactive with that aspect yeah and there's a lot of the things that you can do to um build that trust and yeah. credibility as well so i think the default mode people operate in is I will go to senior management when I've got a problem yes yeah. <laughs> or by exception right yeah. otherwise I'll just keep or doing I need to thing. escalate something yes or, so yeah. you're doing it by exception and what you should be doing instead is making sure that you communicate when things are going smoothly and also communicating your plans even when there's no problem with that plan and communicating the results that you've delivered or what's happened yeah. in in a digestible format because if you don't what the perception from senior management is that they hear nothing from you <laughs> for long periods of time. Let's give <laughs> them some more work. Until there's a problem. And <laughs> yeah. so that's that's like a vacuum, which yeah. then will, they will fill with like questions. Like, so yeah. make it easy for them. Don't make them come to you with a question yeah. and, and like check in on how is that thing going? Yeah. Is that ready? So it's, it's kind of reminding yourself to communicate yeah. even when things are going smoothly and you don't necessarily yeah. need any help just making sure that you communicate yeah. in an appropriate in a, you know appropriate length updates yeah you don't just need to do a know. slack message every hour no. or anything like that but i think and actually asking questions like very you know very like even curiosity questions yes where like today i messaged my product director and i was like right if we're working on this new feature i wonder if we need to consider a new metric or how we calculate mm. something and it just kicked off a really good conversation because mm. it might not have been necessarily something that we'd thought about yet, but it, yeah. it ended up being like a really good chat about, oh, actually, that's really interesting. And it's just little nuggets of things where it's like, it shouldn't be on leadership to think about things all the time. Yes. We all have a part to play in the company and leadership are there to guide you yeah. and to give you advice and maybe coach you through certain things. Or if it's really serious and like it needs to be a business decision, fair enough. But you should have that empowerment as a PM to yeah. do that. Yeah, um, for sure. And you can only learn through practice as well. I think a lot of this is that. Yes. Um, so, um, we talked a little bit about yeah. resilience before. Yeah. But I think um, it would be worth yeah. diving into this topic. This is about the emotional side of yeah. being a PM. Um, yeah, and you mentioned that you feel like it's taught you a lot of I think skills. so, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think this is an area where we should talk about it more because, as I say, I think there are a lot of PMs feel sometimes that they're struggling and they're yeah. not sure if that's because they're doing the job wrong. Yeah. Um, why is it so hard? Like, what, what are the things that you need to be resilient about <laughs> most of the time as a PM? I think the first thing is, I think it's what we talked about before, where it's like just because you think a test has failed or it's not what you're expecting, let go of that. Mm actually look at it from a higher perspective look at the bigger picture there is never going to be a product that you work on in your career that is, it's going to be quite rare that's just constantly churning out success things yeah um and i think it's all about instead of and again it's, it's really hard because i've been in those situations where it's really hard to kind of get out of but like the thing i think about is okay what what am i learning from this yeah what have i learned it's like a retrospective on yourself um, you have retros with your team, have a retro with yourself and think, right, evaluate that situation. What's gone right? What do you think you could probably do next time? Um, what have you learned from this feature, this experience, what you're seeing right now? How can you pivot on it? And I think maybe treat yourself as a product. Yeah. Like 
how do you get the value out of yourself? I know people who do this. So it's um. like Inception, like <laughs> PMing your PM brain. Yeah, I think I think it can be. You you need your resilience most. I think. Yeah. Um, not just when you have that horrible feeling that oh, am I making any progress? But yeah. also when you feel like you're in conflict with other people, or you have to say no to things, yeah. or um, or the team's not happy, or actually you need a lot of resilience to adapt to change as well because yeah. you can be investing in something for quite some time and then um, the the market changes or yeah. something something about the business scenario changes and you've got to pivot or you've got to drop what you're doing and pick yeah. up and, and work happens on something all else. the time yeah and yeah. so i think i think in all of those situations it's it's about choosing how you respond to the scenario yeah. um we all work in circumstances that are less than perfect. And I think you, you have to be really selective about like, when do I try and change how we work versus when do I actually just accept there are always gonna be constraints and obstacles and I've just yeah. got to get on with it. Um, and so the most successful PMs that I've seen are the ones who have that, let's get on with it yeah. attitude. Um, and I still, I still think it's okay to kind of feel disappointed when a test doesn't go right or to yeah. kind of feel, but it, it's more like um, getting Back on well the, on it. get back yeah. on the train quickly right i yeah. think um so definitely allow uh, allow yourself a bit of time to yeah <laughs> feel disappointed that's absolutely fine um, embrace people around you as well because there might you know there'll be people in design people in tech who had expectations of things and it's like actually just work together like you know embr embrace one another yeah um support one another that's that's what it should be i think that's what a successful squad looks like um, I think it's really interesting what you've said as well when it comes to things like cross collaboration where perhaps you you're working with a lot of different people who will all have different opinions and there's a lot of risk there I think sometimes where emotions can run high or yeah. there's that temptation to be like oh well they, they don't understand me and I'm trying to get my point across or you, you are going to face people like that in whatever job you do and I think for me and I think something that I think works to my advantage is I'm quite an empathetic person. I don't think in any job in the world there is someone who you work with who they're just pure evil. Like they're just evil, 99% evil. Um, everything they do is with cruel intentions. Nobody comes to work to do that. Everyone no. has a good intention at heart. And I think that everyone wants to succeed. Everyone wants a product to succeed or the business. And I think having empathy and understanding where another person is coming from, being open with viewpoints yeah. and discussions really helps you get to a better conclusion quicker. Yeah, I think- And it's something that's like really encouraged here as well. I think everyone's like, I'm quite fortunate that we are encouraged to be quite open and we can share how we feel. I think something that makes um, the, the role quite hard sometimes is that a lot of PMs are very ambitious people and yeah. quite often overestimate yeah. what, we, what's re what's reasonable to achieve and underestimate yeah. how hard it's going to be and that doesn't mean that you should drop your ambitions but um i remember this was something that definitely affected me um earlier in my career where i thought the bar that i had to meet to for it to meet the definition of success was this high really really high yeah. and it was great to have that ambition and a lot of people are motivated by it but then it, it kind of it kind of makes it so that you're it's almost impossible for you to feel good about what you're doing. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I read a, not a product management book, but I did read a book recently which talked about the merits of aiming for average. And it was basically saying that if you, you'll be more cons more successful over the long term if you are consistently average, rather than if you mm -hmm. set a really high bar for yourself, yeah. which then you'll worry about not meeting and like, and, and uh, be, yeah too perfectionist or procrast you'll procrastinate something or it will generate a lot of yeah. fear of failure in you. So I think, um, what am I saying here? I don't think you should, should not be ambitious, but, yeah. but at the same time, I think you can improve your own resilience yeah. by really moderating. Of course, you would love to achieve like a massive, great big result oh, for the yeah. company and hit out of the park. And that's what you daydream about. And that's yeah. your, in your fantasy mind. Like, you know, yeah. I'm gonna ship this feature and it's gonna go absolutely viral. People are gonna love it immediately. Yeah. Um, and, and that's great to have that optimism as we discussed, but also, you, if you if you have a little, like a little yeah. win, it's still a win and you should take it, right? Or yeah. I think you can be, you can be hopeful, but also yeah. be realistic. And sometimes it's about just like, moderating your own expectation of yourself because this yeah. is a really really hard job yeah. um 
And so and there's a really, really hard line to tread because if you're not, if you don't have a motivating goal or ambition, you kind yeah. of lose engagement with what you're doing. If, I'm not saying don't, you shouldn't care if it yeah. fails or succeeds. Of course you should. Yeah. Um, but I think just, just double check whether the bar for that is actually realistic. Yeah. Don't be hard on yourself. Because <laughs> if, you yeah. if you're expecting 70% of your AB tests, Rachel, to succeed, yeah. that's probably not, going to happen because in reality <laughs> I've heard I've, oh, I don't know yeah. what the figure is you've had between 10 and 20 percent of yeah like apparently Amazon's yeah. AB test what is it 90 percent or is it Google or like these big yeah like 90 to 99 percent failure for a lot of huge companies but I think what they ha have in their favor is they keep testing yes they keep, just going. keep hammering away at it yeah. yeah yeah and I and and that is important. That's why it's important for you to have the courage of your own convictions about the direction you're going in and, yeah. and um, play the long game, as I yeah. say, because it's, it sometimes can take longer than you think yeah. to get the result that you're, <laughs> you're looking for. But yeah, I mean, I, just, I would just set a level of personal yeah. ambition that is actually realistic yeah. internally. So you know, you still want to motivate your team and say, okay, here's in an optimistic case, yeah. here's what we could achieve because that's really motivating. But actually, if all we achieve is this, that's yeah. going to be a good result for us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is why it's really important that um there probably needs to be more forums and books or tools out there that actually talk about that softer skill of being a PM. And yeah. I think like you said, like I don't know many areas where this gets talked about a lot. So um, are there any books that aren't necessarily PM specific that you would actually recommend if you want to become a better PM? I would say more psychological books. So like behavioral psychology. Um, I think understanding what makes people tick and how to, I guess, manage. I think mindfulness is a really good one because mm. it's something that everyone should be practicing in their everyday life. And I think that having that space to do that will actually help you. And it, not just in product management, but in other jobs. And I think that, yeah, I'd probably recommend that rather than, you know, this has got product management on the title, therefore I must read that. Maybe yeah. look at other books that exist out there. Yeah, I like books about psychology as well yeah. because if, if you're working on a product that is used by people, yeah. <laughs> it's very useful you to understand fault, more yeah, about... Yeah, you can't argue with psychology. About know, how cognition so. works, yeah. about how people process information, yeah. about behavioural psychology. But then those books are also yeah. useful for the other the 80% of the job yeah. we've discussed, which is working with people and understanding yeah. how... The, the, your, not just your users, but the people yeah. that you have to work through and with to get things done um, and then I think like general books on communication yeah storytelling there's some good books on workshop facilitation yeah one book I like that was introduced to me by uh, another former Moonpig colleague of ours oh. Camilla is yeah. uh, orbiting the giant hairball oh, right, I can't I remember that. the author's name I should have looked this up beforehand but it was written by um, someone who worked at Hallmark cards yeah and I'm fuzzy on the details because I've got a terrible memory, but essentially um, orbiting the giant hairball means uh, finding ways to leverage the company's resources to move closer to a goal you have. So it's right. almost like a lateral thinking book because it's saying that, yeah. look, every company is a hairball. Every company yeah. <laughs> it has a load of bureaucracy and processes and things that you, in theory, have to work through yeah. um, to get anything done. And these can often seem like barriers. And what what this person did was kind of he, it, the point he's making is you can't you can't get stuck in the bureaucracy yeah. but nor can you just go out on your own on a limb as a maverick and say no I'm not going to follow any of that process I'm just going to do my own thing yeah. over here because that's not realistic but there are ways and means to use to, to, to use the processes in the company culture to kind of drive yeah. your way towards the same outcome um, and that's it like that that's the takeaway from the book by the way like yeah. I don't think that people can necessarily do exactly yeah. what the author did in the book which was things like um, set up an office and just invite people to come in with ideas they had and he just gave them permission to pursue the idea yeah. <laughs> he just said yeah that sounds like great it was it, it, the point he's making is that a lot of people permission seek for think for good ideas that yeah. they want to do or creative things they want to pursue now not everybody can do that and certainly you can't have a yeah. whole company full of people just doing that because <laughs> yeah. there's a lot more kind of of the day-to-day -day pedestrian that. work yeah. that you have to do. But basically the, the main message was that, yeah, don't get stuck and feel powerless in the hairball and all the bureaucracy and think, oh, I can't do anything. There's nowhere for me to move because of all these constraints. Yeah. You can find your way to find your yeah. way sometimes to around the constraints, to move the constraints, but ultimately like not yeah. so much that you, you're out on a limb as a, yeah. a, as a total maverick on your own. So I like that book. 
um, just about working in a large company, really. Yeah. Yeah. I really like, I read it years ago, and I think it's it's something that I use in everyday life. And I think that actually it's really useful if you are a product manager. And it's a book called The Chimp Paradox. Mm. It gets referenced quite a lot. And it's the idea that like, actually cognitively, um, we've still got a part of our brain yeah. that comes from when we were like hunter-gatherers, we were out in the wild, we had to react really quickly like the limbic to things. System yeah, and then there's this other part of your brain that will try to basically overpower that yeah. and basically be like, no, chill out, yeah? And actually, it's like, you know, like if you're in a traffic jam and someone cuts in front of you and your immediate response for many people is like, effing and jeffing like you want to kick off you want to do like the reactive yeah. um kind of thing that's your impulse and actually you've got this part of your brain that's like just stop and just think a little bit yeah think do you really want to do that i think do you want to do also- something else and i think actually with product management it's like just give yourself that little chance in resi- like in terms of resilience yeah. and behavior just have a little think yeah i like the it. i like the two brains model yeah. as well so yeah I, I actually think there might be three brains i can't quite remember but i know there's the limbic system and then there's the prefrontal cortex which is <laughs> yeah. the verbal one because sometimes when we're designing products we also I'm just like it's just my chimp thinking we um. design yeah, <laughs> we design it in a very logical way where as if we expect we expect yeah. the user to be in their prefrontal cortex yeah. and very logically doing the thing and actually that's not how they behave no. <laughs> because their behavior is driven by yeah. so many other things and like gut reaction yeah. and yeah system one and system two thinking is another another i've got a very that. reactive face as well and sometimes even if i'm happy about something but if i'm concentrating i'll immediately like oh, okay. frown yeah and I was, are you in a mood and i'm like no i'm just frowning like i'm just i'm just concentrating but mm. my face will often subconsciously do something before my brain does something right so and I have this, to be really in control of that sometimes. Okay. Is this something that helps or hinders you in product I don't think it, No, it doesn't hinder me quite a lot. It's just now and again. Like if I'm in conversation with people, but yeah. It's just little things. And I think just being self-aware, like we are just brains. <laughs> That's what we are. Brains on legs. We're brains on legs. That's all we are. <laughs> Sorry to get existential, um, but yeah. We're um, just brains on legs and all we can do is do our best. In conclusion, <laughs> there we go. We've got the conclusion to the book. Yes, um, we are only human, I think, is the, <laughs> is the conclusion there. Cool, that's all we have time for today. So thank you very much, Rose, for uh, joining us on this week's episode. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. And don't forget to like, rate, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you soon for another episode. <laughs>